0: Hello fellow Kentuckians and other friends and welcome to a new edition of my Old Kentucky Podcast. My name is Robert Connie and joining me as always is Jasmine Smith. Jasmine, how are you today?
1: I'm doing well, Robert. How are you?
0: I'm doing very well. Today on the show, our guest is Sherilyn Stevenson. She is a state representative from currently from Lexington. Uh, She still lives in Lexington, but her district is changing substantially. She used to represent most of and I guess currently represents most of Southeast Lexington, but in redistricting, um, basically her house in Southeast Lexington is included in a district that includes most of Northern Lexington and actually goes all the way up into Scott County. So we talked to her a little bit about the redistricting process, and then we also talked to her quite a bit about the session and what it's like trying to represent your your community and trying to sponsor bills as a targeted member of the minority. Um, So that was a really interesting, good conversation. She has been on our show several times before, dating back to when she was very new politically in 2018, so it was always very good to talk to Cheryl, and I thought it went very well. What did you think, Jasmine?
1: Yeah, I thought it did. It, yeah, I'm pretty sure she was one of our first guests ever. She was definitely our first candidate interview ever when she, we first had her on.
0: She asked to be on. I was like... She you did. Know, and we were early. That was early days for us too, and she yeah. was like, I want to be on your podcast, and we were like, yeah, okay, sounds great, uh, so we've, you know what, we've all come a long way since We this.
1: were also so energized
0: we, yes back, <laughs> <right>? <laughs> <laughs> back in the halcyon days of 2018, yes, okay, so that's that was the interview, it'll be at the end of the show, it was great, I hope you stick around and listen to it, but before we get to that, we have lots of stuff to talk about, Jasmine's going to be talking to us about a CRT bill that's it's making its way through the legislature, um, you know, it's been in the news quite a bit, uh, so you probably have heard about it, but we're going to give you all the details. I am going to talk to us about a few other session issues, two bills in particular, HB 63 and SB forty. One's about SROs and the other is about parental rights. So we'll talk about those things. Uh, Jasmine's going to talk to us about the Louisville jail, which is in crisis. We talked about that a few weeks ago. It continues to be in crisis. And in fact, the crisis is worse. So we're going to talk a little bit about that and just a few political updates. So without any further ado, Jasmine, tell us about this other CRT bill.
1: All right, so we've talked on the show about a couple different bills that would ban certain discussions on race in the classroom, and now we have a new one from Senator Max Wise. And so this one is a little different in that it does not ban discussions completely, but it does mandate how subjects are to be talked about, which... Is also problematic, at least I think so. Um, so, this one is Senate Bill 138. So, Max Wise is the chief sponsor. It's co sponsored by Robbie Mills and Damon Thayer, also both Republicans. And here are some of the things that the bill would do it would prohibit schools from requiring teachers to discuss current events or attend re- race related trainings. It would also prohibit schools from requiring any kind of lobbying or policy advocacy as required coursework. So like if you ever had any kind of assignment where you write a letter to a state house member or, you know, something like that, it, it would prohibit schools from requiring something like that. Um, and then here's like the mandated part. Schools shall provide instruction consistent with the following concepts. So, some of these I'm going to summarize, but I'll, we'll have them all in the show notes. One, that all individuals are created equal, all people are entitled to equal protection under the law, people deserve to be treated based on character, not race or sex. Um, the understanding that the institution of slavery, and post Civil War laws enforcing like segregation and discrimination are contrary to American values. That the future of America's success is dependent upon cooperation between members of all races, personal agency, um, and understanding that anyone has the power to succeed when given sufficient opportunity the significant value of democratic principles of equality, freedom, freedom, and inalienable rights, um, and that an individual doesn't bear responsibility for actions committed by other members of the same race or sex. So those are mandated instruction that goals would have
0: to provide it's it's very it's i don't know it's very interesting i would say that all of these are like prevailing opinions in american education in fact probably like overwhelmingly prevailing uh if you're introduced to concepts that are contrary to any of these they're usually like as color to um you know what are other ways to think about things but they are like some of this kind of smacks of like anti-communism stuff that was around in like the 50s especially around you know the all, all people can like lift themselves up by their bootstraps or whatever right i'm, I'm also kind of interested in like that all people are entitled to e- equal protection under the law because like that's the under that's the underpinning principle for like pro-choice right that was like roe v wade was <laughs> decided under the equal protection law so i don't know if that's something that they are like you know i guess you have to to uh teach people i think that.
1: roe v wade was decided under due process like uh due process not equal protection oh, okay
0: well all right fine it's uh, all
1: for it's all 14th amendment though
0: yeah i don't know the difference i just know it's about the 14th amendment um yeah it, but this is you know mandating teaching anything is uh you know a fraught uh, fraught thing to do um but yeah i mean everybody i i feel i feel like it's pretty obvious what they're trying to accomplish with with, with this and that's like making sure that you know Teachers teach what they want them to teach and not anything else. Yeah. Removing agency from teachers.
1: Yeah. So that's the list of concepts that are mandated. And then a couple other things that the bill does, it allows controversial aspects of history and topics like oppression to be discussed as long as they're taught in an impartial way. Impartial is the language in the bill. So I, I think that's a little broader than some of the other anti-critical race theory bills that we've talked about. Um, And then it also has a list of writings that must be taught. And it's a very long list, so I'm just going to list a few of them. Um, But it includes... You know, the Bill of Rights, the Federalist Papers, Declaration of Independence, um, some Supreme Court cases like Brown versus Board and Plessy versus Ferguson, um, some Martin Luther King Jr. writings, the Atlanta Exposition Address, address by Booker T. Washington, um, and then A Time for Choosing by Ronald Reagan, which I think is maybe one of the less common ones there um so a time for choosing i had to look up exactly what it was i don't think i was i don't think i had to read that in school
0: <laughs> uh, yeah i didn't know what this was until like i read history books much much later uh, when we were kids, they didn't teach much about the 80s as history. Uh, unfortunately, we're a little older than that, maybe, but I think maybe they do a little bit more these days. Um, but yeah, this is not exactly an impartial piece of writing.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think the speech was actually given even earlier than that, it was in the 60s. Um, so it was a televised speech that Reagan delivered for Barry Goldwater where he talked about how Democrats have gotten too liberal and how welfare programs don't work. And he was, like, kind of saying that, like, Democrats are becoming, like, socialists.
0: Yeah, it's kind of like... I mean, honestly, that this is the speech that launched the modern conservative movement as like the mm-hmm. anti-tax conservative movement in the Republican party. Uh, yeah. Like Barry Goldwater, obviously, if you know, lost by a million points or whatever, but also like launched the star of Ronald Reagan, who then became governor of California, uh, and then became the president of the United States after, you know, gaining a following in the millions. But you know, that this is like, the, yeah, the, a lot of, all of these other things like the federalist papers, the declaration of independence, are like core documents to American identity, uh, and then you have the <laughs> the speech that launched mm-hmm. the conservative movement as required by law as something to be taught in uh, Kentucky classrooms. So there you go.
1: Yeah, so that's the contents of the bill. The spokesperson for the Senate Republicans said that the tone of this bill was more positive than the other two bills. My impression is that this bill is meant to be to be a little more palatable than the other like anti-critical race theory bills, like better than the one filed by Joe Fisher. Um, but I actually think that this one is really bad because it's a little scary that it, it mandates um, certain things that have to be taught. And so, yeah, I,
0: there's a lot of problems with this bill. Yeah. I mean, I mean, and it is, I would say, like, okay, one of the three CRT bills is definitely going to pass. Which one are you going to pick? I'm going to pick this one. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. That. That's a good point. I guess I'd pick this one. But
0: but that's not the rules that we're following. You do not have to pass a CRT bill, and they should not pass this bill. They shouldn't pass this bill, and they also shouldn't pass the other two. At the core of this, you know, whatever. Even if you leave out Ronald Reagan, even if you leave out you know, a lot of this other, like, make sure that people are taught these anti-communist lessons or whatever. At the core of it, it's about not trusting teachers to do their job. Um, and, And that's what all CRT stuff is is like we do not trust teachers to teach children correctly. We feel like we have to get involved, and that's like really shameful. I think teachers are heroes. Uh, they do a great job, almost completely. Um, they they do hard work, and pu- putting more on them and and you know kind of infantilizing them by mandating that they teach certain things. Um, that's really I don't know. That's really bad in my opinion.
1: Yeah, it is really bad and it's also making sure that they're taught like a certain w- white history and and that's a problem.
0: Yeah, too. absolutely. Absolutely.
1: Um so this bill was supposed to be heard in the Senate Education Committee on Thursday tomorrow. Instead, the committee calendar now says it's hearing the bill barring trans girls in girls sports which is also a really bad bill and so if you don't like these anti CRT bills and you don't want to bill banning um trans girls from like girls sports call your legislators tell tell your like-minded friends that this is happening <laughs> um so that's what's going on in in the education committee tomorrow so i guess we're going to hear um, this max wise senate bill another day
0: yeah i mean i think the backlash i I don't it always surprises me that the republicans are like surprised that people don't like controversial legislation but i think max wise was a little surprised at the backlash he received um to this bill um there were a lot of teachers that were really upset and i think he was like well what's wrong with it what what do you mean like what's and uh, you know uh i think that he is backtracking a little bit which is good i guess that's good hopefully we get a committee sub that is better um, or better, better, best of all, maybe he just pulls the legislation all altogether. We'll see. All right. There were a few other things that happened in the legislature over the past week. I wanted to highlight a couple of other pieces of legislation. Uh, just, you know, FYI, the, the house has passed now 47 pieces of legislation. The Senate has passed 33. That's current as of Tuesday. I didn't check today or, uh, yesterday. Um, you know, not a lot of legislation has gotten through both chambers and it's always kind of hard, hard to tell what bills will advance through the whole process, Um, yeah, I did want to highlight two other bills and also just to say that like, this is the time in the session when like nothing happens for no reason. And then all of a sudden by like the last five days, they like try to cram everything through, uh, which like, Hey guys, if you really wanted to pass things and you didn't want to be rushed, instead of passing a new constitutional amendment that allowed you to go back into session for five days, why don't you use this day? Why don't you use this day to pass some legislation uh, and make sure things get things happen? So, you know, that's not what's going on. So, OK, the first one I wanted to talk about is SB 40. The, the media has written a few stories about it. And this is a bill that's cleared the co- cleared committee, uh, but has not yet been voted upon by the whole Senate. It's what's called a parents rights bill. Uh, and there's other bills like it that have popped up in other conservative states. This bill seeks to prevent the government from interfering with parental rights, uh, which is, uh, you know, an incredibly amorphous concept. Uh, This bill's language defines a parent's, quote, high duty and right to nurture and direct their children's destiny, including their upbringing and education, unquote, which means whatever you want it to mean, right? It's like, uh, what does it mean to, uh, you know... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> to, to define your children nurture your indirect their children's destiny uh i don't know what that means at all it's kind of ridiculous um steven west is the chief sponsor of the bill i think he's the only sponsor of the bill he was asked like why are you doing this like are there instances when you know parents ability to you know nurture their children's destiny has been infringed upon by people and he didn't really have any good Answer to it, he didn't, he, but he did say that the bill was like preventative to prevent anyone from ever um, uh, and interfering in a child's destiny, I suppose. So WFPL, they wrote a story about this. They pointed out that the rationale for this bill is provided uh, by the family foundation might be, uh, something on their website, which was like in Cincinnati. This is something that the family foundation claims that in Cincinnati, a liberal judge removed a 17 year old girl from her parents because they were against a, a sex change operation that she wanted. Um, I don't know anything about this case. I couldn't find any references to the, the, the case itself on the Family Foundation's website. I actually even like looked a little bit online to see if I could find any like media stories about this and couldn't find any. Um, I, I'm not saying it's completely fabricated, but I don't know if that's in fact all of the facts of the case. Um, so take it with a grain of salt. But that's the sort of thing that is happening in conservative media that's ginning up the need for something like a parents' rights bill. Okay, a host of groups are opposed to this bill, including the ACLU and the Fairness Campaign, which is not surprising. They're liberal groups against a conservative bill, but also groups like Kentucky Youth Advocates, which pretty much plays it down the center. Uh, They work with Republicans quite a bit. Um, They are also opposed to this bill. They worry about the impact of the potential law on child abuse cases, um, which, of course, you know. If you're a parent and you think it's your child's destiny to be, you know, abused, that's something that probably we should abridge, right? That's probably something that we don't want to have happen. Yeah,
1: that's what I was thinking about when you were talking about the bill.
0: (laughs) Yeah, so the bill did pass uh, the committee. Um, but it ended up being a little bit more controversial than people thought it should be. And there were actually some people, Robbie Mills, I think, mentioned uh, as a sponsor of your other bill, uh, wasn't super keen on it, even. And I think he actually abstained because he was not in person. So, anyways, we'll see about the future. We'll see if it gets taken up on the floor. But something that I wanted to highlight. HB 63. That's the other bill I wanted to highlight today. And that's a bill about SROs. So um, you you are probably aware if you've been listening to us for more than a year last. uh, Well, I guess it's two years ago at this point. um, In a recent session, um, there was a bill passed was Senate Bill one. It was after the Marshall County school shooting. Um, that mandated that there be an SRO in every school building, but they actually weaken the language uh, before they passed the bill because that's very expensive. It's very expensive to put a cop in every single school building. Um, and, and one of the main school districts that decided not to take that route was JCPS, um, which, you know, I think actually did release a plan to like kind of share police officers across different buildings to become in compliance with HB1 from a few years ago. But HB63 actually tightens up the language um, in that law quite a bit. It requires that an SROB... at all schools by August of this year. Uh, And previously, the language had been um, that the SROs would be required at each campus, quote, as funds and qualified personnel become available, unquote. So yeah, it it really makes it a lot more serious. And JCPS is going to have to really accelerate their program uh, for putting cops in schools if Um, this bill does pass. The bill doesn't provide any additional funding um, for schools to hire SROs. So that's something that the individual school districts are going to have to figure out. And it'll be mandated by the state. So you know, money that was being spent on things like, you know, mental health, which isn't required um, in any meaningful way by the state, you know, they'd have to take money away from something like that, or marching band or whatever, like things that are actually enriching the schools to pay for a police officer to be at that school. Um, yeah, uh, the bill did pass 16 to three out of committee. Um, the people who were mostly opposed to it, who spoke out were members of the Louisville urban league, um, who, you know, I think brightly said that we should spend the money on more mental health care, more school nurses, that kind of stuff rather than on cops in school. Um, yeah, so those are the two bills I wanted to highlight. Neither one has gotten a floor vote as of yesterday. I don't think they got the one today either, but, um, we'll see how those things advance through the legislature. There are several other bills that have passed. Um, Those are the things that kind of the media were focused in on this week. Uh, We will see what happens and if the the legislature uh, passes anything uh, fully, like if both houses pass anything, which hasn't happened in a a week or so. Okay, those are the other things I wanted to talk about with the session. Jasmine, talk to us a little bit more about the Louisville jail crisis.
1: All right, so Unfortunately, a sixth death occurred at Louisville Metro Department of Corrections over the weekend. Um, this time, it was a a man in his thirties who was locked up on an out of custody bench warrant for being behind on child support, and it was reported in the media that he was housed in a cell with no lights that wasn't supposed to be even in use at the time that he died. And so, um, the crisis in Louisville Metro Department of Corrections continues, and and just like a, a look at you know what's happened over the last couple of months and, and what's happening with this now, the Metro Council Public Safety Committee is considering a no confidence vote in jail leadership. Corrections employees um, did get raises. Its top ranking employees got like double digit percentage salary increases um which some people were upset about how big their raises were that that that's what funds were being spent on um councilman jacori arthur um did like a, a video this week he said that he's working on proposing legislation to release low-level offenders including like a bail fund grant that would allow like using city money to post Lower bails, like five hundred dollar bonds and things like that. District Court Judge Julie Kalin has said that she's made a motion that would change the way the out of county out of county warrant cases are dealt with. So there is a bit of a problem with this when someone has an out of county warrant but not out of state. So it weren't out of like Bullock County or Hardin County or something like that, but they're picked up in Jefferson County. They used to get brought before the judge here or arraigned, but that isn't happening anymore. And they're just getting lost in the system. And it sometimes takes a long time before the other jail to come get them. And so um, they're never brought before a judge here to let someone know that they're in custody. And so at least one district court judge is, is trying to get um, the chief judge and the other district court judges to fix that policy. Um, And, and they're, This is difficult because of a procedural rule, but we definitely used to handle this better. And so hopefully there will be some changes in how cases like that are dealt with. Of course, you know, those cases are a small percentage of all the people that are incarcerated. So that, you know, that's just one piece of the puzzle. But that's definitely something that could help and could maybe prevent um, situations like what happened this past weekend. Mayor Fisher also held a press conference this Sunday. Um, he said that we've worked with the state, the Jefferson Circuit Court, District Court, judges, the Commonwealth Attorney, the public defender, and the County Attorney's Office to safely reduce the inmate population. Um, it w- the population had been reduced by about 200 according to the numbers that Mayor Fisher gave. Um, but the population as of Monday was nearly 200. It was about 165. 165- 167 I think over capacity so as of two days ago the jail was over a hundred percent full and so we're not reducing very much yeah
0: this the this kind of tells me that like the the mayor's office has worked with all these different you know stakeholders in the process and this is basically what the what the what all of these people could agree to and the thing is, if you actually are serious about fixing this issue, you're going to have to, like, make one or two of these groups, like, kind of upset with you.
1: Right. You're going to and- have
0: to be brave and reduce the inmate population. Uh, and and that's not something it looks like that they're willing to do.
1: Yeah. Uh. And the people the people that have the-, the greatest influence over the jail population are the two prosecutors' offices and the judges. Um, so... That's who you need to convince. (laughs) The public defender's office can propose all they want to. Yeah,
0: really glad that you gave them a seat at the table, Uh, but it's too bad you didn't let them do anything with it. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Yeah. Um, And then Mark Bolton, who is the former director at the jail, he wrote an op-ed in the Courier-Journal about why the bail project is necessary. And I just linked it in our show notes to... Add to our newsletter this week because, you know, I never saw Mark Bolton as this like progressive jail director or anything or like he he made the jail so much better. I never thought of him that way. Um, but like ev- even he recognizes the problems there and and why things need to be better and um, why we need charitable bail organizations. And um, so I just thought that was a really interesting read. And so that's, that's where we are. That's what's going on in the jail right now. And, but I just wanted to share a couple of things that I think could be done. I think we need to be reviewing cases for release like we did with COVID because that was one time where we actually did get the jail population down substantially. And then it went right back up, you know, right when we opened the courts back up, we started. Issuing bench warrants again, taking people in on bench warrants when people when people come before the court to set aside bench warrants where they miss court, those people sometimes get taken in instead of getting their warrant set aside. And like we have to stop things like that. Um, so we need to be reviewing cases for release, fix that out of county warrant process. Um, prosecutors could not ask for bench warrants, agree to set them aside not issue them on child support cases issue like unsecured bonds or surety bonds instead of full cash bonds Um, use our monitoring services. I also saw that Hardin County is doing bench warrant amnesty um, where you can like show up one day and everybody gets their bench warrants dealt with. And um, you could also do bench warrant amnesty like, recalling old bench warrants that are like over 10 years old or something like that. Um, And then also just, you know, this is a little bit harder because it takes money, but funding alternative programs that we used to have, like the living room, which was a kind of like a um, shelter and like living services, short-term services for people with like mental health and substance abuse disorders, instead of those people ending up doing these like short term stays in the jail. Um, and we defunded that in 2019. And so those are some uh, quick, uh, immediate fixes, I-, I think that we need to do, I think, except for, you know, actually funding programs, all of those things that are, are things that could be done now to reduce the population.
0: Yeah, it's not a problem. We don't know how to fix, we just have to actually you know, be brave and take the steps needed to fix it. So yeah, um, it, it's really shameful. Six people dying in your jail and the short span that has that's happened is just horrendous. Like that's just misgovernment in the, the worst possible way. So uh, hopefully, that's it. Hopefully nobody else dies. But you know, with as bad as things are, honestly, it just feels like a matter of time. So uh, that's really, really bad. Uh, and I hope that I'm wrong. OK, a couple of political items I wanted to talk about. So, first of all, um, most of these are uh, are endorsement related. Um, so Morgan McGarvey secured the endorsement of John Yarmouth this week. Uh, so Morgan McGarvey is running for Congress in Louisville in the 3rd District. And John Yarmouth currently holds the seat. Um, I would say like half the people assumed that this had already happened. And maybe the other half wondered if John Yarmouth wasn't going to endorse Uh, and just kind of have an implicit endorsement. Um, So Jasmine, before we go any further, do you think endorsements matter at all? And do you think this endorsement in particular matters?
1: I think endorsements matter some. I don't know if this particular one matters. I mean, Morgan McGarvey announced immediately after he retired, he's raised a ton of money. He has a ton of endorsements. And so I don't, I don't, think it matters too much but i I was a little surprised by it considering that yarmouth said that he was not going to endorse unless his son ran
0: Mm -hmm. yeah yeah that was a little surprising for sure uh i wonder uh i i wonder why he decided to do it um but you know i i'm not surprised I, i would have thought if uh if john yarmouth did endorse it would have been morgan mcgarvey so um I know. Uh, I mean, clearly, Morgan McGarvey feels feels like it's important, and uh, I think John Yarmuth was willing to do it, uh, even though he said he wouldn't. So, you know, I don't think anybody uh, who's like a big, big fan of John Yarmuth, who's like strongly influenced by John Yarmuth's uh, political stances in the Democratic Party, uh, were uh, not going to vote for Morgan McGarvey already, but maybe. Um, This other one is maybe a little bit more interesting. So Craig Greenberg, uh, running for mayor of Louisville, he earned the endorsement of a set of Metro Council members on Tuesday. So Cassie Chambers, Armstrong, Keisha Dorsey, Marcus Winkler, Nicole George, and Donna Purvis. David James is also up there, but of course, he's been a major endorser of Greenberg for a long time. But, you know, if you're talking about Metro Council people, that's a big chunk of Metro Council. So, yeah. So does this endorsement matter more, less, or at all for for Greenberg versus, you know, McGarvey?
1: I don't know. I've only lived in Louisville with Greg Fisher as the mayor. And so I was surprised to see such a big group of Metro Council members do this. I've honestly seen a lot of people that I know kind of frustrated by this. And so I don't know if it helps him or not.
0: Frustrated in what way?
1: That that many people would endorse Greenberg (laughs) because the people I know um, are like supporting Tim Finley or Shamika Parrish, right? And Just aren't on board with having half the council endorse him together.
0: I guess. uh, You know, I think that if you're running for mayor, you want to get these people to endorse you. You ask them to do it. Oh,
1: yeah. There's nothing. That's what you're supposed to do. um, But.
0: Yeah. I think maybe they're frustrated that at the council people for giving their endorsement. Maybe.
1: Yeah. Um, That's. Yeah, that's what I mean. Okay,
0: I gotcha. Yeah, for me, for, from Greenberg's perspective, these are almost, like, defensive in nature. I feel like it's not a big deal that these people endorse Craig Greenberg. But if those pe- any of those people had endorsed a different mayoral candidate, it would have been, like, a huge jump in credibility for them, right? You know, say, mm. like, Donna Purvis endorses, you know, Tim Finley or something. Like, that's something that, that gets him in the news media. That's a surprise, this, I think, kind of got ignored a little bit because people are like, yeah, yeah, not surprising that all of those people endorse the guy who's like kind of the front runner. Um, but yeah, I, I think it is a little bit more defensive for Craig Greenberg, but it does like avoid a potential, uh, you know, move by a, one of the people who he's running against. So, you know, uh, it, it happened. Uh, and, you know, just kind of moving forward in the way that these races seem to be moving so we'll we'll see what happens in the near future all right lastly uh annual fundraising totals were reported this week and the kentucky democratic party pulled in three million dollars which is almost double what the republican party of kentucky raised kdp actually has a million dollars more than the rpk at the start of 22 so you know the democrats are facing huge headwinds But that's uh, that's pretty impressive. I think that that's that's pretty impressive that KDP was able to to kind of have more money than the Republican Party um, right now. So, Jasmine, are you surprised at the Democratic Party having so much money? Uh, I mean, do you think it matters from a political standpoint?
1: I think it's surprising and important because we're at a disadvantage with redistricting and uh, with the number of seats we currently have. And so money is really important for those things.
0: Yeah, I think it's really surprising because I would have expected that like donor, the donor class would have been like, well, all the powers with Republicans, what's the point of funding Democrats at this point? Uh, And and Democrats have been able to do it. I mean, they've been able to convince people um, to do the moral thing and and donate to Democrats as opposed to to Republicans, um, even though, you know, those Republicans know who gave to the Democratic Party. And if you are a business owner or somebody with money and business before the legislature, uh, you're kind of putting yourself at a disadvantage. But um, that so that's like really impressive fundraising by the Democratic Party, um, which, you know, it's 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 not the voters are against the Democrats right now. Um, But this will be able to probably blunt some of the problems that The Democrats have, uh, instead of, you know, going down to like 10 or 15 members, we'll probably be able to stay at 25 or so. So, you know, that's, uh, that's, you know, I guess good.
1: Encouraging. Uh,
0: (laughs) Yeah. Uh, it's definitely graded on a curve. That's for sure. Um, all right, Jasmine, I'm going to let you go since your computer's being a little funky. Okay, so for COVID, which I'm going to be doing by myself, uh, cases in Kentucky fell substantially last week, and we are at about 50% of the peak of Omicron in terms of case counts. Meanwhile, deaths are stable and our hospitalizations are in clear decline. Louisville saw a massive drop in case counts down about half from uh, 12,300 last week to uh, uh, 6,250 in just one week. So it was a one week decline of, you know, like almost 6,000 cases. 62.50 62.50 is still the highest number of cases in Jefferson County outside of the Omicron period, but we are moving in the right direction. Lexington is down to about 500 cases per week, down from a high of about, a, uh, uh, their high was about 1,000 cases um, per week, um, and now they're down to about 500, so that's pretty good. Um, that's also very much in line with Louisville's decrease. Kentucky on Tuesday saw a it's first county dip outside of the red zone, which is 25 cases per 100,000 population. And that's Carlisle County in western Kentucky, uh, one of the counties along the Mississippi River uh, in Kentucky's western purchase area. Um, yeah, that uh, that county had 21 cases instead of 25. So they were orange. But on Wednesday, they went back up into the red. So, you know, um, it's coming, the the less red map is coming, but it's not here right now. The biggest cluster of cases right now is centered in, you know, kind of central eastern Kentucky, Rock Castle, Estelle, Lee, Owsley and Clay counties all have more than 200 cases per 100,000. But I think those are the only counties in the state right now that have more than 200 cases per 100,000 population. Hospitalizations are down to 2,510 people with COVID. That's lower than the Delta peak and definitely moving in the right direction. Uh, Hospitalizations are going down. The decline in hospitalizations is much steeper than the decline during the Delta wave, just like cases. So hopefully that gets under control quickly. ICU utilization is also down quite a bit to 415, which is lower than the peak during the original COVID uh, wave in the winter of 2020-2021. Deaths continue to be very steady. About 30 people die of COVID each day in Kentucky, and that has been true since about the end of the Delta wave. That's too many people dying, but with so many people getting COVID, it's good that deaths didn't increase. The darkest spot in our COVID report this week is vaccinations. Only about 0.1% of Kentuckians got their first shot of the vaccine this week. That's the lowest total ever that equates to only about a 1000 people a day getting their vaccine. So that's not great. Meanwhile, only about 0.3% of Kentuckians got their booster shot last week, we are at 64.8% with one shot and then 23.4% with a booster. So not enough, definitely need more people to get vaccinated to get boosted all of that stuff. So that's where we're at. So COVID is getting better in Kentucky, we will see if the trend continues in the coming weeks. Let's get to our interview with Sherilyn Stevenson.
1: Sherilyn Stevenson is a member of the Kentucky House of Representatives, where she represents District 88 in Lexington. She won her first term in 2018, defeating her opponent by just 48 votes. In 2020, she won her race by 3%. District 88 is one that changed significantly under the new maps. And we invited Representative Stevenson to talk about her new district and about this year's legislative session. So Sherilyn Stevenson, welcome back to my old Kentucky podcast. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me.
0: It's always great to talk to you. Thank you very much for coming back on and talking with us some more. So you are no stranger to hotly contested races, uh, as Jasmine just detailed. Um,
2: Understatement. And, yeah,
0: right. And, 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 you know, you're almost certain to have another, you know, hotly contested race yeah. in 2022. So, you know, you're, the voters in Southeast Lexington, you know, I would say they got to know you over the past couple of, uh, you know, terms the last couple of races. Um, you were out there a lot. I know that you're very famous for for getting out there and campaigning and, and getting to know the voters. And, uh, they moved your district to a completely different part of Lexington and even included some of Scott County into the 88th. So, you know, obviously you're gearing up for a big campaign. Talk to us about how you're thinking about this and how your approach to the campaign is going to change with this new district.
2: Well, you know, um, it's, it's going to have to change a little, but really not a lot. Um, a lot of the things that we have done in the past, we, we plan to do again, um, you know, my team is famous for knocking doors. In that very first year, we knocked uh, 24,000 doors, and then, um, you know, during the pandemic uh, campaign season of 2020, uh, we lit dropped about 16,000 pieces of literature. And so, my team—they're um, fired up and ready to go again. Um, they did a great job at introducing me to to folks in in 18, and they're they're ready to do it. Um, it is rural, so it's going to be a little bit slower going. And obviously, we know some rural places um, are a little bit harder to get to and just aren't even accessible at all. So we do have our work cut out for us um, on that end. But the one thing I will say is at least this year, um, you know, I have a little bit of a record. I have some name recognition. Um, I think everybody knows that being an incumbent um, it is. it is is a good thing. So even though the large majority of the district is going to be new, um, you know we're we're ready to go. I'm um, I'm excited to to meet my new constituents and and get out there and and talk to them because I believe you know at its heart. Um, a lot of the new people are going to be the same as, as my old people. You know, we had some suburban areas, uh, neighborhoods, and then we had some rural areas. And while there's it, it's, it, it tends more rural this time. Um, you know, I, I think mostly people are, are the same. The large majority of the people kind of reside somewhere in the middle. And uh, when it, you cut to the heart of the matter, family issues are family issues. So,
0: sure. And, and, you know, insofar as any Democrat was like involved in the redistricting process, y- you know, you at least had a front seat uh, to the debate uh, and, and you got to vote on the final maps, uh, which mm-hmm. is, you know, more than more than we had, but maybe not materially more than we had.
2: <laughs> not really. Uh, yeah.
0: So so, uh, you know, obviously, uh, as somebody who is deeply impacted by the process, do you have any mm-hmm. comments, you know, uh, that are safe for a family friendly podcast to, <laughs> to say about it? Um,
2: you know, I think overall, the biggest word is just disappointment. Um, There was very little public involvement in these. Um, They were drawn behind closed doors. Um, Obviously, they're hyper-partisan. You know, they dropped just before the New Year's Eve weekend. And so it's just, overall, it's disappointing. I think it does a huge disservice to the large majority of Kentuckians and um, we would all like to see this done in a in a more fair process. And, and I promise you, I would be saying that even if the Democrats were in charge, um, you know, I think citizens deserve fair maps, no matter how that shakes out.
0: Right. Absolutely. Yeah, that's and, and, it, and it is kind of just a cascading process. We've seen it across the country. Uh, if one side decides to start gerrymandering, the other side feels like they have to and you have just unfair maps in lots of directions uh, across the country, and it's really disappointing on yeah, every level. Yeah, it is
2: disappointing. Yes, it is, and it you know there's there tends to be this like you said tit for tat mentality that happens, and very very few of the people that were here that had anything to do with drawing the lines the last time are here, so there there isn't this retaliation truly happening. You know it's in their it's in their heads that it is, but they're really not getting back at any of the people that drew those lines the last time. You know, and, and honestly, there still are not great maps put out. They haven't put out great maps. I did get, um, a printout that was given to me by the LRC and Robert, we thank you for the, the diligent and hard and quick work that you did to try to, you know, put something out in an electronic format. Um, but we still don't have really great electronic maps for the public to see. Um, the LRC has, if you go to like, find my legislator, uh, Kentucky, that portion of LRC and you put in your, um, your address right now, it will pop up who your current reps are and who they are under the new maps. Um, but to really get a look at the map and see precinct detail and all that kind of stuff, you know, it, it really isn't out there. And obviously we know it's, it's you know, it, it's in the hands of the courts at the moment. But um, <laughs> but again, you know, it, it still to this day, it has not been um, a, a great process. So
0: yeah, you know, you know, me, I could go off on this topic for an hour. Uh, but you know, I, I I I made the maps as best as I could. But you know, um, there's a lot of those districts that they split at the block level, you know, and I don't yep. have the capability to do that. And right. if the if the state doesn't release those maps, they don't exist. Um, right. and, and yeah, if I hear the Republicans talk about Jody Richards and Greg Stumbo one more time when they talk about redistricting, I'm going to pull my hair out. Those guys are gone. They're retired. They're not coming back. So like, exactly. <laughs> you're not you're exactly. not hurting their feelings, uh, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so yeah, you know, um, it was kind of interesting. Uh, as the bills passed. Um, and I do know that, you know, there was an original proposition for the maps and then there, there was a second one that made some very small changes, including right. some small changes to the 88th district. And then you ended up voting right. for the maps, even right. though you're disappointed with them, as you just said. And then uh, once they were vetoed uh, and you had the chance to override the veto, you voted against them. So, you know, kind of <laughs> that there was a difference there and, and we're just wondering what the explanation was for that.
2: Yeah, well, you know, and, and I get that. Um, and really... <sighs> The district lines may change and, but I won't. And that was, that was really the message that I was sending um, with that original vote. Obviously in neither situation was I casting a deciding vote. um, and, And I knew that. So Part of that original vote, yes, was a signal to the new people that, hey, you know, I I know that we're fighting about this, but I welcome you. I will absolutely represent you to the best of my ability. Um, Part of that was, let's just get it over with. You know, I'll I'll be really honest. I had spent several months worrying about what it was going to look like. And so I was like, let's just rip the Band-Aid off and get this over with and let's get to it. You know, redistricting happens every 10 years. It is what it is. So give me the most time that I can to introduce myself um, to the new people. But then the veto obviously happened. And so then that was a, a signal to the people that I'm losing. Um, you know, if I could get my old district back right now, I would take it back in a heartbeat, um, you know, and I would tell anyone that. Um But, you know, I I am grieving the people that I'm losing. Um, Of 54 precincts, I kept 16. So there's a lot of people um, that I've lost. And, um, you know, a lot of them were uh, constituents that I have, you know, really gotten to know over the past three and a half years, four years. Um, Whether they disagreed with me or not, you know, there's a lot of people that I stayed in regular contact with. I am a legislator that. I want to listen. I want to hear what's going on in my district. And I have tried my absolute best to vote the way that my constituents asked me to, not just the way that I thought that I should. I'm here to be their representative, not to do what I want to do. Um, So, you know, I guess... I got a little bit of both worlds and voting both ways. But yeah. like I said, I would not have been the deciding vote in either case. Yeah,
0: of course. And and asking why any Democrat voted for, for or against any piece of legislation is a little bit academic. Uh, that's certainly true. Um, so let's talk a little bit about Scott County. So the 88th was mm-hmm. given a sliver of you know East Georgetown um, and a chunk of rural Scott County in the new map. Um, you know, we have talked to a lot of different candidates who have run in places like Georgetown and in, in small <laughs> cities across Kentucky, uh, through the years. And, and we've heard lots of different people talk about how that can be done. And we've heard different strategies. Mm-hmm. Now you are one of those people who's going to be running yep. in one of those small cities. <laughs> so, you know, from your perspective, um, what do you think, uh, is the best way to approach campaigning in a small city? And, um, you know, how, how are you going to reach out to the people of Scott County and to Georgetown in the next year?
2: Well, you know, I think, um, we have to meet voters where they are. And I think for the longest time there was this, you know, super trend of just trying to campaign with mail or campaign via social media and paid ads in that way. But, you know, people can't really get to know you in that format. And I think trying to get out and go to their door and, and talk to them and listen to what their issues are and then tell them a little bit about myself is the, is the best way to do it. Um, you know, my team when we first started out in 2018, uh, most of us were brand new to canvassing, had never done it, and we were talking to people and we were having really long conversations with people at their door and so we were deep canvassing and had no idea that we were doing it technically um, you know and I think that it was it's really important to just go out and have those face-to-face conversations obviously as the candidate I want to try to get to as many of those people as I can um, but I have a lot of good surrogates that are out there for me and I and I think it's um, you know I think it's good to get out there and explain to people be sure that they know that there's a, a vast difference between federal level policies and and state-level policies and what happens at the state level versus um, the federal level and um, some of the issues that we actually talk about here on a state level um, that affect their everyday lives. And so I think just going out and and talking to people and letting them realize that you, you know, you're a real person. They can see you in Kroger and they can, um, you know, talk to you. And I give out my phone number all the time. I'm like, call or text me if you have questions. Um, you know, I'm, I'm happy to talk to anybody day or night. And, um, and I think that that resonates with people. And I think ultimately, the large majority of the people fall somewhere in the middle. And ultimately, We all want to live lives to where, you know, we have the means to pay our bills. We have decent health care. We have great schools to send our kids to. Um, And so I think when you just really cut to those issues and you let people know that you're that those are the issues that you care about. And that yes, there are these huge wedge issues out there, but, um, you know, that you're really there to do the work for them and their family and so that they can all prosper as well. um, I think it makes a difference.
1: Well, we definitely wish you luck in meeting all your new voters this year, but we don't just want to talk to you about redistricting. Um, We want to talk about the legislative session too. So you've been working on several pieces of legislation this year, including coverage for hepatitis C treatment in pregnant women, several animal protection bills, guaranteeing sick leave for workers, removing waiting periods for health coverage, requiring that health plans cover EpiPens and um, returning newly hired teachers to the traditional pension plan. So, you know, it's well-documented how hard it is for Democrats to get bills passed in this general assembly. Uh, but are there any of your bills that you think have a good chance to make it through the process this year? So I think
2: that the bill that has the best chance uh, of going anywhere is actually, you um, It's House Bill 71, and it's the animal cost of care bill. Um, Last year, I filed that on my own, and Rep uh, Banta was my primary co-sponsor, and we actually flipped this year just so the bill would have a little bit of a better chance. Um, But we got, even though it was very short, we did get a judiciary hearing during the interim. Um, There's a, a, a lot of good momentum behind it. We feel like it's a really bill and um keep the the organization keep um is behind it um because horses are included in that and so they're helping us do some lobbying on that um so we, we feel that that's probably has a, a fairly decent chance um otherwise, I I don't think anything's going anywhere. Obviously, uh, I am one of the highly targeted um, folks this year, so they're not going to give me an inch, Um, and that's okay. That's okay. Um, You know, a lot of these bills are bills that I have been filing since the very first year I got here, and I have um, sworn to people who um, are invested in those that I will file them year after year after year. Um, So, unfortunately, them's the brakes in uh, (laughs) the super minority, but uh, it is what it is.
1: Yeah. And, you know, the bills that you file, there's definitely like a a healthcare theme with some of them, but they really do cover a pretty wide range of issues. So can you tell us how you decide which types of legislation that you're going to work on before the session starts? Well, you know a lot
2: um, a lot of them come from personal experience, a lot of them come from uh, constituents and, and just the community and, and things that I see as a need, uh, I, I really encourage people to reach out to me, um, all the time. So there's actually a bill that I'm working on right now. I haven't filed yet. Um, that's about adoption and allowing, um, adults who were adopted, um, to be able to have access to records that have been sealed about their adoption. Um, and, you know, and that was brought to me by a constituent. And as I started kind of digging into that issue, um, I saw that it's, it's a, it's an, it's an issue that's that's kind of sweeping across America in state legislatures. There's um, it's getting a lot of traction and there's a lot of folks that really want that to happen. And so, um, again, uh, we're here to serve the people. And if the people come to you with an issue and, and there's something that we can do to try to make it better or to raise awareness around an issue, then we need to do that. And, and of course, I know that some of these bills are never going to go anywhere, but they can start really good conversations. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, you you mentioned, of course, that, you know, you're in a targeted seat. And so none of the bills that you're sponsoring this year that you're the chief sponsor on include a Republican co-sponsor. Is that by design or because of a lack of willingness from the other side to cross the aisle? for a Democrat in a targeted seat? Um, I think that there is
2: one. I think that Deanna Frazier-Gordon is on House Bill 58, which is um, requiring insurance to pay for complementary therapies um, for chronic pain patients. Um and again, I, I think a lot of those things, things that you and I would probably consider uh, no brainer pieces of legislation, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, are, are things that that the other side just has a really different view on. Um, you know, the Chamber of Commerce listed two of my bills on their absolutely we do not support these bills list. <laughs> so, um, you know, and I think that that's okay. And I think you know they're they're taking their cues in a in a different way that we are. Um, but it's okay. I, you know, I I believe in the bills that I follow. I wouldn't, obviously I wouldn't follow them if I didn't. So, um, I'm okay if they don't want to get on there. I, I still stand behind them.
1: Yeah. That bill you just mentioned sounds like a really good common sense bill as someone who, um, has experience with like chronic pain in my family. And so, um, Hopefully that gets traction one day, if not this session.
2: Well, I hope so. You know, the U.S. Pain Federation actually contacted me and they said that they thought it could be model legislation. And it was brought to me by a awesome. doctor in my, um, you know, a doctor in my, in my district. But for some reason, we can't get KMA on it. Strange how that happens. Yeah.
1: <laughs> All right. So we're also knee deep in the budgeting process. And it looks like the Republicans are leaving um, a lot of governor, but. Bashir's ideas behind, are there any particular items from his budget or from the Democratic Caucus that, um, you know, you'd really like to see in the budget? Um, obviously the big
2: one for us is pre-K. Um, you know, we all know that our families could, could use the help. We know that our children could use the help, the science on, um, you know, the benefits from pre-K are are there and they're indisputable. Um, I know that a lot of our families could absolutely use uh, the money that they're paying right now for child care and pre-K on their own. Um, But, you know, I think it's also a workforce issue. There's all of these Uh, All of this talk about people not entering back in the workforce and there's a workforce shortage. Well, you know, across the nation, there were like 1.1 million women that left the workforce. And a lot of child care agencies have, um, have shut down. A lot of Kentucky is actually considered a childcare desert. And so it is absolutely something that, um, could help get a lot of women here in Kentucky back into the workforce. Um, and I, I, it makes me really sad that they're not willing to look at it in that, in that way. Um, you know, we, we have an unemployment bill coming down the pike in HB four. Um, and you know, trying to get people off of unemployment and back to work is not our workforce issue by a long shot. It's not going to fix our workforce issue at all. Um, you know, specified teacher pay raises. There were pay raises specified for almost everyone except our teachers. And of course, you know, the story that they're telling is, hey, there's all this extra money there for education. So we're going to leave it up to the district. But um, you know, I think that our teachers deserve for the General Assembly to step up and say, hey, these people have worked hard in the middle of a pandemic and they, they deserve a pay raise. Um And in that vein, hero pay, Um, you know, the House Democratic Caucus, we held um, some hearings, very public hearings um, with essential workers and the fact that we thought that they deserved some kind of a hero pay. And, of course, that wasn't in there um, whatsoever. And we're all deeply um, disappointed in that. Um, We can say thank you until we're blue in the face. But those are just words we need to say thank you to these people in a meaningful way.
0: Yeah, my, my mother in law is a uh, actually does uh, home health stuff uh, for her um, for her her uncle in West Virginia, and mm-hmm. uh, got a hero pay bonus. And I can tell you that oh. that's like deeply appreciated by the people there. Right. And also goes to show you that it doesn't need to be a partisan issue because they have a Republican mm-hmm. legislature too. So you know, exactly, uh, very silly. He, yeah, a lot a lot of good a lot of good points there. I, I really love that your your bill um, about um, chronic pain will be model legislation so you can take heart that you know maybe your work um, will benefit some pain patients in like Colorado or Washington right. or Maryland or something <laughs> yeah. um just maybe not here in Kentucky that's too bad um all right so uh you know we did invite you here on February the 9th which uh, you know is here at the beginning of Black History Month and, and you know you are have been in the legislature now for a while and and you know your your district is you know uh it's an urban district. It's, it's less urban than a lot of other of Fayette or Jefferson County districts, but it's an urban district. Uh, and mm-hmm. I, I'm interested in hearing you talk a little bit about, uh, your work in the legislature on issues that relate to black folks in Lexington and beyond and, you know, how being in the legislature has, has impacted you, um, on issues of, of race and justice, uh, over the past few years.
2: Yeah. Well, you know, um, as a caucus, we really uh, try to lift up a lot of those issues. Um, we talk a lot about expungement. And, you know, thank goodness Governor Bashir was able to do uh, a little bit of that with executive orders. But, um, you know, we need to go a, a, a lot further. Um, Representative George Brown, uh, one of my fellow Fayette County uh, reps, um, every year has a Ban the Box uh, bill that we all sign on to. And I think, um, you know, it, it, it is one of the most needed things that, that we should do. Um, obviously voting rights, voting rights, you know, are, are, they're, they're huge. And that's, um, it's also part of, uh, the redistricting issue that, that we had as well. Um, and so I, I think while last year during last session, we, you know, we passed, um, a bill that that made it easier to vote in some ways it definitely did not go far enough um and do a lot of the things that we uh need it to do um obviously you know the the id bills and 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 things like that that we've tried to to fight but lost um and then there's just you know there's small things um Attica scott and and her bill about allowing black folks to have their natural hair in, in in schools and and other places, so you know, there's just a litany of things that that we have here, and and I, a lot of us in the minority get told all the time, especially those of us that are new and have only been here since we've been in a minority. Oh, you should have been here before. It was it was so great, and so you know, these are things that are that are very frustrating that that we're here and we have really great ideas and. Um, the folks from Lexington and Louisville and, and our few that are sprinkled around, you know, we, we represent a lot of people um, and, and it's really unfortunate that we can't uh, make progress on some of these things that just seem like no brainers because we're we're in such a minority and the. And the political climate is what it is that they're just you know are not willing to let anything um, be heard. They're not. They're just totally shutting us down. I think last year we heard what three Democrat bills in the House, and uh, I don't. I think maybe one of those passed the Senate. Um, so it, it 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 stinks. But um, you know we're here. We we're not gonna we're not gonna stop. We're not gonna be quiet. We're all gonna you know run and, and fight as hard as we can to to hold. The ground that we have, and hopefully gain a little bit more, and um, you know, our, our, our Black Kentuckians can can count on us to keep trying to to raise their voice. Uh, and then, you know, we've got the things like Joni Jenkins stepping down, you know, so that uh, her new majority minority district um, can have someone that that mm-hmm. represents them that looks like them, and I you know, it was really funny. I don't know if you heard her tell the story, but there was um, a member of the GOP walked up to her and was like, why are you leaving? And she said, well, if didn't you see my statement, this is why I'm leaving. And he was like, oh, you really believe that stuff that you say. (sighs) So, you know, (laughs) well, that stuff is disappointing where, you know, we
1: get knocked down, but we get right back up every day to keep coming in here and,
2: and fighting for these things that we believe deeply in.
1: Representative Stevenson, before we let you go, how can people get involved in your campaign? Well, obviously, um,
2: you know... Call me, text me, um, or follow me on social media. So on Instagram, uh, Facebook and Twitter, I am Sherilyn for F O R K Y. Um, so slip into my DMS and let me know that you want to help. Um, also you can email me at Sherilyn at Sherilyn stevenson.com and we will absolutely put you to work.
0: All right. Thank you very much for joining us. We really, really appreciate it.
2: Thanks guys.
0: How can people get a hold of us?
1: They can find us on Twitter and Instagram at my old KY Pod. They can like our Facebook page and listen to our podcast on the podcast app of their choice. We also have a newsletter you can subscribe to at TinyLetter.com slash my old Kentucky newsletter. And we have a Patreon page where you can support what we're doing for as little as a dollar a month. You can do that at patreon.com slash my old Kentucky Podcast. And last but not least, we are part of the Dimcast Network.
0: All right, everybody. Thank you for joining us and we will see you next week.